And welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I am your host, George Sapio, and this week we are talking with Dusty Wilson, a playwright who currently hails from the theater mecca of Chicago, Illinois. Dusty is not just a writer of brilliant theatrical works, he is also well known to thousands of theater aficionados as the man behind the curtain of the monthly aggregation of play submission listings hosted on the webpage Official Playwrights of Facebook. Since it's a labor of love and a critical resource, that's where we decided to start our interview. One of my favorite people ever on Facebook, and that is specifically because you spend your time providing the rest of us on the official playwrights of of Facebook with playwriting opportunities. First of all, let me send a huge thank you, um, because doing this on your own takes so much time. And even though your list is not comprehensive, um, being comprehensive would take way more time than I think you could even yourself could do. But here's my question. First of all, why? Why did you bother doing this? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you so much. I, I really thoroughly, thoroughly appreciate that. It's um, I, I just kind of started it on a whim years ago, about uh, I think seven, eight years ago. I was um, I just graduated undergrad. And there, there were a number of opportunities online and places to find opportunities. And I kind of um, personally just got fed up going to each one individually. But they were, they were still really, really good. There was um, Frank Blocker, who was a playwright in uh, New York City, ran a site for a while. Uh, and Avant, who is uh, still occasionally posting opportunities, uh, was posting a lot. And I just figured if I'm looking at these places, I might as well go ahead and compile them all into one spot. And initially, I'd invited all my um, undergrad friends from Ohio University. And about a month later, we started getting our first members outside of the group of people I knew. And oddly enough, it was just a bunch of playwrights from South Africa. And from there, it just kind of grew to where it is today. Okay. Um, Where do you actually – what are your sources? Um, As of right now, I have about 45, give or take. Wow. About – yeah, about half of them are Facebook groups um, of the big ones that I use. There's uh, the London Playwrights blog, which I'm a humongous fan. That one's really great. Um, and Avant's still one I use, Berryman, which is um, more Anavant. of an international sort of one. Okay, and Avant, I'm familiar with. What's the international one? Um, the international uh, – Berryman. It's a writer's group. They, um, I believe they're based out of um, London, if I remember right. Okay. And uh, the League of Theater Women, that one is absolutely spectacular. Easily one of my favorites. Fantastic. Um, yeah, as, as most playwrights out there are going to, you know, they probably got their ears glued to the radio at this particular point. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, looking for more, uh, more sources to call submissions from, because I know as a playwright myself, uh, you know, it's, I could never have too many sources to go looking to find places to send my stuff to. Oh, yeah. Because this is, you know, it's, uh, for us, it's, it, it works on volume. Okay, quality has to be there. The quality of the work has to be there, uh, of course. Otherwise, why do it? But the, num- the volume of places to submit to um, needs to be huge because, as we all know, there are, you know, about 5,000 theaters for every playwright out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so 45. Wow. That's, uh, that's intense. I know, I know that, uh, you're constantly updating, um, 
the playwright submissions on official playwrights of Facebook, and you do that fairly often, which uh, I'm I'm personally grateful for. Uh, I've already oh, that's sent, not a problem. Thank you. <laughs> I've, already, I've already sent out a couple this morning. Um, Fantastic! It's it's one of the things that that I I have to do as a playwright to keep sending my stuff out. How often do you yourself submit? Uh, I try to do a big block of submissions at the beginning of the month. I um one of my flaws is I lose track of time exceptionally easily. So whenever I I get all the submissions done, I have to do them all in one go, unless it's something I mark on a calendar and I I know for a fact I have to get it done on that date. Like the um, the Last Frontier Theater Conference, I right. had a piece that I really really wanted for that, and so I had to block out that as my one submission that I am going to finish that on the day and get it ready. Cool. How did that work out for you? Uh, worked out pretty good. It's a piece I'm incredibly excited about, and I'm uh, feeling pretty optimistic about it. Hopefully, come February, we'll see how it goes. Tell us a little bit about the piece, if you don't mind. Oh yeah, it's um, it's a modern day adapta- adaptation of uh, Lysistrata. Okay. It's uh, set in northern Mexico during uh, during the cartel wars, and it's um, <laughs> the uh, the title of it is Luz Estrada. It's definitely it's a new it's a change of pace for me because typically I'm uh, I've been doing a lot of pieces that are a little more grounded they're um they're I'll take their uh, take their time with dialogue I would say and this one I'm trying to keep the pace as, as quick as possible to try to make things visceral and intense and I, I think it's getting there a couple more drafts and I think it's going to be right where I want it to go there you go it's all it's always hard to know when play is actually done do you have a problem with that. Oh, not at all. It's it's um it's definitely one of those things where I feel like I, I think you hit a point where a play is kind of done and any more tinkering with it and it's gonna the structure's gonna start to get a little wonky. Yeah. But I'm always open to hearing what anyone has to say about it, whether it's an audience, whether it's uh whether it's friends, whether it's other playwrights. If if someone notices something that's wrong with the script, then even if it's something you love, that's something you have to seriously consider and ask yourself if it genuinely needs fixed. It's it's yeah it's hard to know what's good advice and what's not. Well, I mean, have you ever been challenged with a piece of advice that goes against something you intrinsically within yourself know is already perfect with the play, but other people seem to be questioning? Oh, absolutely. I, I think that happens pretty much with every piece. You you find I, I think you fall in love with your play, and especially especially with me, I. I can view my own place from my own point of view. And when it gets to that point, there are certain places within my plays that I really, really love and don't want to let go. Um, my, uh, my last play, Ephibophilia, had a, had a huge monologue that was one of my favorite things that I had ever written. Um, but I, I kept getting this advice that it doesn't fit in the play, it's a little weird, and that it was kind of distracting with one of the characters. And I was very stubborn about it for, I would I think, about two or three drafts, but... Eventually, it got to the point that I was hearing that advice so often that I had to step back and I had to seriously question whether or not I needed it. But I think when it comes to other sorts of things, you have a, you have a gut reaction. And if your instinct is telling you it has to stay, and maybe it's not so much that that's particular part that has to change, but the lead up to it that has to change. Yeah, it's obvious there's there's a glitch somewhere in the roadmap of the play. And that's, oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, and it's generally the hardest thing for a playwright, I think, to deal with in a lot of cases, other than dreaming up deep what comes next. But you put so much work into this. Oh, yeah. And it's 
yeah. and you create this whole world that it makes perfect sense in your head, but it's it's trying to explain it to other people so it makes sense in theirs as well. Exactly, yeah. It's perspective is something, and I've learned over the years uh, to always work with people who know structure, people who know plays, people whose work I respect so that when I bounce this off of them, I get back criticism that I actually have to listen to. Absolutely. All right. Um, and I've, I know from personal experience, I've taken out so many of the best parts of my plays <laughs> and they are now lingering and dying on the floor. I mean, it's sad, but um, I can either I mean, turn them it's into monologues. Killing babies or... is, it's, oh yeah, it's never fun to kill your babies, but it's, <sighs> it's, it's really weird. I, I Whenever I think back, uh, trying to remember those parts that I cut that I really, really love, I remember maybe 1% of them, and I maybe miss even less than that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, yeah. yeah. It's a question of accepting and moving on. So uh, this is, this is going to be a tricky question here. It might be a dumb question. I don't know. You send out a lot. What's your success rate? Oh, man. Um, I would say my success rate is probably around, I, mean, I think 1% would be generous okay. to say. All right, as long as I'm I, not the only one out there. Oh no, no, it's, <laughs> that that was a really, really tough lesson to learn early on. Yeah. I uh, I'd written a full length play after I graduated, and it was it was fine. It was very fine, but when it's a full length play and you're sending it to a bunch of my my issue is I sent it to a bunch of theaters that would not have any interest in it. It wasn't something that fit their fit their mission statement. It wasn't something that really kind of fit their their ideals or their seasons or anything like that. I just blindly sent it out. And so that was something I had to slowly learn was that you can't just send it everywhere because it's not just that a play isn't liked by a lit manager or an artistic director. It just it has to fit. It has to fit within their uh, fit within the ideals of the theater company. And I think once I started to do that, my, my success rate went from about 0.1% to maybe around 0.5 to, to 1%. Uh, well, it's, it's getting bigger all the time. And that's what counts. Uh, you oh, mentioned yeah. last material, uh, theater conference of which yes. I am also a veteran. Um, oh, fantastic. Oh, I love it up there. Um, it's so amazing. <laughs> Dawson Moore, we love you. Um, oh, he's so great. I am super, super jazzed that he's still doing it. It's absolutely. amazing. <laughs> How many times have you been there? I've only been once. I, for as much as I champion it, that one time was just one of the most transcendently amazing 10 days of my life. It was so great. How did, how was your play received? Um, it was received really well. It was, um, let's, I, let's, was let's explain to the audience before we go into this. The procedure uh, for what happens. Um, you and I are both playwrights. We have plays. We send them to Dawson Moore, who heads the uh, the conference, and it goes through the Dawson Moore adjudication process, and he picks as many as he can, yes. and he lines them up uh, scheduled during the week to be read. That is not performed, read, staged readings, behind, uh, just readings behind uh, stands. And you have three adjudicators or people who comment, all professional playwrights, all professionals, uh, well, maybe not playwrights, but professionals in the business who listen to your play and provide feedback in front of an audience. Yeah. All right. So what happened with yours? Um, well, it's it ended up getting received, I would say, incredibly well. I um this is also where I learned that my favorite monologue needs to go just because I got Ooh. so many response from, responses from so many people, especially the adjudicator saying it had to go. <laughs> and 
as heartbreaking as it was when when Shelley Kramer and Marshall Mason are saying this needs to go, you should probably listen and you, you should, should just let probably it probably listen. Yes. <laughs> exactly. You just got to push that aside and just, you know, but um, but it was fantastic, especially I mean, the thing I love about Last Frontier is it's it's an opportunity to hear not only the the opinions of your fellow playwrights, but fellow theater lovers from I when I went, it was people from Alaska where the conference is to people who had flown in from Ireland. It was I it, it's an opportunity to hear points of view from people that you would otherwise never get to meet. And it's it's thrilling. It's very exciting and very fun. And this and I think one of the best things too is that the the conversation doesn't just stop after your play is presented and people give you their feedback. Oh, we were, no, we were no, talking no. about, yeah, Oh yeah. We were talking about plays up there pretty much every single night going to whatever bar was still open and singing karaoke and then just talking about everyone's work the whole night. It's, it's a unbelievable geeky theater camp for playwrights and techies of, of uh, professionals of all ilk. Um, it's nonstop. It's, it's 24 seven. I think I slept a total of, Maybe 14 hours the entire time I was up there. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually almost overslept for my reading just because <laughs> I was so behind on sleep. And I think it was uh, I think it was a player named Nicholas Walker Herbert just started shoving me and he's like, I think you have a reading. You should probably go. You think? Well, part, yeah. of, the, part of the problem is, is that the sun never quite goes down up there. Yeah, that took a bit to get used to. It does getting used to. And the fact that you can't get any sleep because the sun is shining through the window. And since the sun is up, you really don't know when to stop and go home. Yeah, that was that was an issue. That was an issue. Um, okay, let's talk. Let's let's change gears a little bit here. Uh, sure. The MDQ. Yes. Um, this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful project in uh, the making. Um, I'm going to leave it to you to explain this. Oh, fantastic. Um, well, it's a, it's an upcoming podcast that's going to be premiering the first week of January in which I interview a playwright for the first uh, 30 minutes of the show. And then for the second 30 minutes, uh, we present the first 30 or so pages of a work that they are um, currently interested in uh, premiering or showcasing. It's going to be works that have been produced three times or less and have had anywhere from zero to infinity staged readings. And it's mostly to be, uh, designed to be a podcast to get uh, more exposure for playwrights to get their work produced, especially to get the um, – while it's incredibly hard to get that first production, it's oddly enough even harder to get that second production. Yes, so it's – Yes, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of places out there only want world premieres, never been produced. So it's a catch-22. Once you get your play out there and done by somebody in you know Weehawken, New Jersey for you know two weeks – yeah. Where do you, what do you do with it next? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it makes it incredibly difficult. So I figured um, by, by doing the podcast sort of thing, it would give people, uh, especially lit managers, readers, um, artistic directors, directors, an opportunity to hear new works without having to, to go to the scripts that they have on hand. That they While they're writing to work or while they're on the train, they can listen to a new play, see if they like it. And if they do, then for uh, $5, they can buy an electronic copy of the play uh, through the MDQ website and receive the contact information of the playwright to potentially produce their work. Excellent. And this is going to start when? Uh, the first week of January. 2015. Yeah. 
It's, okay. it's coming up. <laughs> Here's my next question, because uh, as a producer myself, I know the trials and tribulations of putting together even the smallest and most simple of theatrical productions. This is going to take a lot of work. Oh yeah, it's been it's been pretty much nonstop work for the past few months. It's been putting together an acting troupe, getting the directors together, um, getting all the plays set up. Uh, especially finding a recording studio. That's going to be. It's. I'm get, actually testing my uh, mics this week to see if it's. Um, to see if a few friends' apartments can work to bring people in to do uh, vocal recordings and things like that. But I have a, a recording studio in my back pocket if need be. But it's. Uh, it's been. It's been crazy, and especially with it coming up so soon, it's been. It's been a whirlwind, but I'm incredibly excited about it. Fantastic. I. Uh, you're. You're based in Chicago, correct? That I am. All right. So there is no shortage of theater people out there to ask. I yeah, that's been really the fantastic thing is it's a a cornucopia of actors and directors and uh, designers. It's been it's been um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's been it's been fairly uh, easy for, to find, find people. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's been heartwarming. The, just the amount of people that when you ask, it's I mean there have been. Pretty much everyone who I've asked to be a part of this, I've thought to myself, they're not going to say yes. They're too busy. They're, you know, their their schedule is going to be way too packed. And literally every single person I have asked has said yes. And it's been incredibly heartwarming, the reception to this. So it's incredibly exciting. Fantastic. This sounds like a, a, a wonderful adventure. Uh, where, can, where can we go to find out more about this? Um, well, currently we are building the website. When the website is up, it's going to be at uh, the mdq.com. Um, and that should be going live in the middle of December. But for the time being, uh, we do have a Twitter account at um, pretty much at uh, the MDQ on Twitter, and um, the rest of the information can be found on the official playwrights of Facebook. Fantastic, okay. fantastic! Looking forward to this. Um, okay, you mentioned, uh, and I, I saw from from your resume, uh, you've been. You've worked as a literary manager and a script analyst for various mm-hmm. places like you know, Mind the Gap Productions, Unfortunate Theater Company, Blue Cat Screenwriting. So now you're working the other side of playwriting, right? And on yeah. one hand, you're Dusty Wilson, you're, you're in your closet and you're churning out, you know, uh, visions of excellence that, you know, people all over the world are going to want to produce. Um now that you're on the other side and you're getting other people's visions of excellence that everybody's going to want to produce, how does that? How do you how do you reconcile one against the other? What's it like all of a sudden having to look at other people's work and essentially be judgmental? I mean, it's it's definitely tough. I think it gets to a point where you have to kind of pull yourself out of it and just. Um, go entirely off the piece itself, um, especially with this uh, particular particular project. I'm uh, a couple of my friends have been helping me out with uh, doing some readings, but for the most part, I'm doing the readings. And so, uh, for the sake of time, I, and especially one of the things I've learned is that um, a script has to just kind of grab you within the first ten pages. And it's it's something that I've kind of had to go along with this. And especially with smaller theater companies, it's something I've learned that more than likely they're going to have a small staff. So you have to just really grab them from the get-go and to get them through the – to uh, to get their attention. Um, but it's definitely hard. It's really, really difficult because I get so excited by reading new scripts and I get so excited by reading new plays. 
and especially with all the plays that have been sent to the MDQ so far, it's it's been a wealth of amazing work. And it just gets me so incredibly excited. And then it's incredibly daunting when you realize that there's there's 26 episodes to fill and you want to bring all of them along. But some of them are going to have to get pushed to the next season. Some of them. Um, and it's yeah, it's just very it's daunting and it's a little terrifying, but it's. How it's many, a lot of fun. Uh, how many submissions have you received already? Uh, so far, we've received 75. That's not shabby. Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I would say for a, for a podcast with no website, it definitely turned out pretty good. Yeah. I know if I had 75 plays sitting in front of me, I'd probably freak out. Oh, yeah. It's it's incredibly daunting, but it's I, – I think one of the things that helps me with it too is that I – I can't help but get excited by new works. And so anytime I grab a script, whether I have the time or not, it's been, it's still exciting and it's still something I love to do. How do you, uh, how do you maintain your sense of perspective? Cause I, I run the Ithaca fringe festival out here in Ithaca and Hi. we get submissions. And last year we had close to 36 and even though we draw by lottery, which means, you know, basically anything can go in there and get picked, we vet them for, you know, uh, uh, excessive hate, anything that might have to be highly offensive or illegal, you know, stuff that goes mm-hmm. against the fire codes. Basically, I have to read every play. And I know that after reading plays for a while, I start to get a little play blind. And I really don't know what I'm reading anymore. How do you maintain your perspective? Um, I, th- I think it's incredibly I, – I fall into that all the time. And it's – I think it's a multiple step process. Um, as you said, when you're vetting stuff for like excessive hate and things like that, I've been incredibly lucky in my, in my time as a lit manager and a reader and for the MDQ, um, in, in 10 years, I've only ever received one play that really kind of fit that. And I, and that's, it's kind of one of the great things is that there's, there's great work and it's, it makes it easier to go through. But when you're reading great work after great work, it is easy to get a bit play blind. Mm. Well, it's, it's part of the but, problem um, is judging I, I, great of, work. I mean, oh, yeah. Judging what's part good of, and what's not because what's good to you is going to be crap to somebody else. Oh, absolutely. And that's I think that's step one right there is for me it's important to realize uh, what plays don't fit my personality. It's, it's a lot like wine. You're not going to love every single wine in the world. But it's important to know that if you're going to be big into it, you have to taste the wines that you don't like but understand what makes them good. Right. And and it's for some reason there there are two plays that I just can't get through. It's like uh, plays about baseball. I can't. I don't know what it is, but my brain just it it just can't comprehend. And if there it's a play set in Russia, for some reason I can't do it just because the names are very long, and it, I have to replace the names with like Steve and Frank and things <laughs> like that just so I can understand Steve who's who. Putin. But yeah, I think a lot of it is just understanding. You know, you're not going to love every single play, but it's important to take the mindset of someone who would like that play and trying to find the the quality within it, even if it's not your cup of tea. Yeah, it's it's, it's never easy, and it's always tough. As I said before, there's way more plays than there are theaters uh, and literary managers, and it is an extremely tough uh, tough business to succeed in. I noticed. Uh, I'm, I'm going to put two questions here together for for one. Oh, sure. um, you talk about using structure to be able to read a play, right, and to be able to find 
I think what you call problems or faults, I'm going to call resolvable questions. Um, and that was almost tied in with uh, your studying with Deborah Brevort. Yes. Okay. I know Deborah. I know Deborah from uh, Goddard College. I never oh, studied fantastic. with her, but I do know people who have studied with her, and unanimously they praise her ability to be constructively critical and precisely analytical when it comes to this sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So you're big on structure. I know she's big on structure. You got a play in front of you that you're you know you're working on somebody else's play that sort of thing. How do you employ structure, and how do you employ what you know Deb threw at you? to work on this sort of thing? Oh, man, I, that's that's a lot of questions at once. I First Isn't and foremost, it? I have to say, if you have the opportunity to study with Deborah Vort, do it immediately. She is absolutely and utterly brilliant. And it, the same with Eric Ramsey. I learned under him at Ohio University. Both of them were exceptionally strong into structure, and I'm the playwright I am today thanks to them. Especially with Deborah, she was the, the – she, she taught me very early in my playwriting career – and so when she was throwing structure at me, I still had that weird stubborn mentality in the back of my head where it's like, I'm not going to read David Ball's backwards and forwards. I can just write these plays and it'll just be fine. Um, and so when she really hammered structure into my head, it was it was really great to learn the importance of that. But um, I, I think when it comes to a play, I don't actually focus on structure strongly until the second draft. And so for a first draft, I'm just going to throw everything out there. I'll kind of have an idea where things are going to go. But it's it's typically the second draft for me that I'm really focusing on structure and really kind of figuring out where where the foundation of the play is really strong, where the where the characters are going to be, where they're going to be fitting in. And usually it's not until the third draft that I actually work on the main character and get the structure of that person right. You mentioned uh, David Ball's book, Backwards and Forwards, before, which is an yeah. exceptional, exceptional work. Um, that is, emphasizes structure from page one all the way straight through to the end. And it's, uh, it's, it's the, I'm going to call it the psychosis because that's what it is of reading a play. Oh, yeah. All right. All the way through and then all the way back. Absolutely. So, it's, so, yeah. Which is, it's, I mean, playwrights out there are going, what do you mean? Read the play backwards. Why, you know, but yeah, you, you start thinking about the structure. If you can read it through all the way one way, is it clear if you go back the other way? Um, I'm, I'm just going to – movies like Memento. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah, and it's – yeah, and especially just knowing uh, – being able to go back and trace everything that makes sense within your play and understanding, oh, this leads to this, so this leads to this. And especially, especially being able to confront yourself with the question of if this thing were gone, what would have fundamentally changed within the play? And I think that's something that you get absolutely from reading your play backwards and, and that sort of thing. I, no I noticed you had a minor in history. What was your concentration? Um, it was a concentration in well, kind of a couple things. For for a while, it was uh, Middle Eastern history between uh, 1500 and 1800. Mm. And for a little bit, it was in uh, presidential history. Excellent. Have you ever written a historical play? Um, I've attempted. I've, I'm working on one right now about the um, the poison scandal. I believe it was in the 18th century in France. Where essentially all the hierarchy had discovered that if um, they went to some particular neighborhoods in France, they could get some poisons that were pretty undetectable if you use them precisely for two weeks. And then suddenly your brother, your father, your ne'er-do-a-husband is uh, dead and you've inherited everything or you're free to marry whoever you want. 
And this went on for years and years and years until um, essentially the king of France uh, found out there was a plot against him. And they scooped up every single woman of science from this particular neighborhood, some of which were poisoners, some of which weren't, and um, had them killed. That seems rather harsh. A little bit, a little <laughs> bit. And yeah, and pretty much everyone in the aristocracy, of course, got off scot-free. And it was... Of course, yeah. Well, well, oh, yeah. Is no, yeah. Playwright versus historian. Where does one begin, the other start? And how do you get one to shut up? Easily, I would say the hardest part about writing a historical play. It's... Um, especially when I was working on this, one of the hardest things that I had was feeling like I was honoring the people I was writing. I, d I, I don't like the idea of putting words into the mouth of someone uh, historical that they wouldn't have said to misrepresent them. But I think it gets to a certain part, point, especially with the first draft, that you just have to do it. And so the hardest part is getting the historian to be quiet, to just write the story – see what happens, and then in later drafts, um, adapt and fix the historical inaccuracies or to really define the characters better. Because I, especially with a play, I don't um, – you're not really giving a 100 percent to this is a lesson in what happened in history. Um, you're still entertaining the crowd. You're still giving them an idea of what had happened. But above all, you're trying to depict a theme. And I, I think that's the, the one of the major things, that if you're focusing on the theme over um, the history, you're going to get the history right, and the play itself is going to be better due to focusing on the theme. Who are your favorite playwrights? What are your favorite plays? Oh, man. Um, I think the first play that really – well, yeah, the first playwright that spoke to me would be uh, Tennessee Williams. When I was in uh, when I was in high school, I um, our, our theater section was maybe about six books. And uh, I, went, I went to a school where our graduating class was 94 people. It was directly in the middle of a cornfield. It was, but it was a fantastic school, really, really, really great place. But um, I, I had discovered an anthology of Tennessee Williams' plays there, and I, I had read Summer and Smoke first, and I was hooked immediately. Mm. It was just weird, and I'd never, I'd never, I'm not counting Shakespeare. I'd never read a play that had like such a haunting and tragic ending because it's an ending you should feel at least slightly good about, but it's just so destructive at the same time. And it's, I, I think I fell in love with his subtlety immediately. Yeah. And so I would definitely consider Tennessee Williams to be one of my biggest influences. Was that the play that changed your life? Um, I would say so. Yeah. It's, um, Prior to that, I, I just thought, I was like, oh, I'll write movies or I'll be a psychology major and occasionally, you know, dabble in writing. But I would definitely say after reading that play, it, it showed me that that plays could be just heartbreaking and exciting. And it made me seriously consider playwriting as a career. And so, yeah, I would definitely say so. Do you find recurring themes in your own work? Um, absolutely. Um, it, it's something that I had to really kind of sit down and think about for a while the past couple of years, but a lot of the themes that I, that I work with are themes of the taboo. Um, with, with my previous play, Ephibophilia, it was about, um, a young couple on the verge of losing their home. And so they decide to find, lure and blackmail a pedophile from online. And a lot of that, um, to, a lot of the thing with the play that I feel like makes it makes it work is that the pedophile himself isn't a character that's um, the main villain of the piece. He's 
his character is sad and his character is, you can kind of understand where he's coming from, but he's still, he still is who he is. But I love exploring the gray areas of characters like that. And especially with people with taking a character that on its face is like, yes, that person is downright evil. And then taking that character and just throwing as much gray area at it as possible to kind of dig deep and figure out who we are as people. For a playwright to construct a play that has depth, that has meaning, that has resonance, that has what I like to call the all-encompassing truth of humanity, you need to make all of your characters sympathetic. You need to to make them reachable. So all of a sudden, if you are in somewhat sympathy with a child molester or Mm -hmm. someone of an equally disgusting... uh, profession or characteristic mm-hmm. that's hard it's uh, what kind of feedback do you get from audiences about that sort of thing i mean it's it's definitely odd um with uh especially with ephibophilia i got a lot of a lot the main comment i heard was i can't believe i am sympathizing with this character right and it's i i i, I know it's a very it's a very quick answer but um I always go to um, what I learned from playwright Thomas Bradshaw, who a lot of his plays are very uh, – there are characters that are flat out not sympathetic. But I think one of the things that makes his plays work so well is that there's so much gray area thrown at them. And especially with his newest play, Carlisle, a, a play about a, a black Republican doing a play about why he's a black Republican, you – you sympathize with him so quickly and you like him and he's just a great guy. And then as soon as it gets to the end, you realize that you have just accepted and loved this guy, despite the fact that he believes in the exact opposite of what you believe and that you've kind of been lulled into liking this person. So I think, I don't, I don't know. I think sympathy is incredibly important, but I think also relatability and I I hate to use the word tricking, but, um, um, I suppose uh, I suppose it does work is tricking the audience into liking a character that they normally wouldn't so that they can question themselves in a, in a way that they normally wouldn't. But isn't that our job? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. And, and our, our job is to basically trick people. We, we trick them from the moment they actually sit down in the seat because we are presenting something that is not real. Yeah, We are presenting a representation and characterizations of people who do not exist, right? Talking about problems that do exist, mm-hmm. right? In a place that doesn't exist, right? And a sequence of events that may or may not exist. So, I mean, at the very least, we are tricking the audience, but the audience wants to be tricked. Oh, absolutely. The fact that they've paid their, you know, $57 for a seat, um... And they have, you know, gotten a babysitter and gotten dressed and that sort of thing, gone out and sat in the seat. They are walking in asking for us to trick them. Yeah. And, yeah, it, it's such a, a ridiculous tightrope. There, Every single play I've been a part of, you can always – there's always a, a billion ways things can go wrong in the lead up to it or opening night. There, like a light could fall or sound could just suddenly not work. Or lines could be dropped. There are just so many things that could go wrong, and it's it's exciting and invigorating, especially once you get the audience to that point where they're so sucked in that they're oh my god, it's that terrifying. they're pretty much living it. Yeah, it's, oh it's, yeah. I, I find every aspect of opening weekend to be 
sheer and utter terror because of everything you've just mentioned. Yeah, yeah it, it, it took me years to actually be able to sit down throughout an entire opening night. It used to be that I would just stand in the back of a theater and then just sneak out every 10 minutes to walk around outside and then go back in. Mm-hmm. Not because anything was going wrong. It was just like the the sheer nerves of everything. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like I said, so many things could go. But that's that's the joy of live theater. Every night, oh, absolutely. Every night is different. Right, and they're going to deliver lines differently than they did last night. They're going to find connections, and at the end of a three-week run, they're going to look at you and say, "I wish we had three more weeks because I'm still discovering things." Yeah, and I mean, how could it not be terrifying? (laughs) Exactly, Uh. and it's, and I think it's exactly that that's the thing is going to bring in a new generation of theater audiences. I know that's something that a lot of people talk about. That it's getting harder and harder to pull in pull in younger audiences, but especially that excitement and I think one of the things that we we as theater makers need to need to stress on younger generations is we need to bring up shows like um, Orange Is the New Black or um, of course I'm blanking on it the Kevin Spacey House of Cards House of Cards yeah. and and shows like that and say you love these shows they're staffed almost entirely by playwrights. You can see works directly written by these people in theaters across America. And not only will you see a show that written by one of your favorite writers, you can see something unique and you can see something that is entirely yours and full of an, a ridiculous amount of risk where anything could go wrong at any moment and you'll get suckered into it just as much as you do when you watch your favorite show. Oh man, that sounds so good. Thank you. <laughs> well, Dusty Wilson, it has been fantastic talking to you. I've been dying to meet you ever since you know, I started seeing your stuff on uh, official uh, playwrights of Facebook. So for our audiences, uh, give us a website. Tell us about the NBQ quickly one more time, where we can, you know, where we can find you. And uh, what's, uh, what's next for you? Well, um, if you're a playwright and you're looking for playwriting opportunities, uh, just go to Facebook, type in the official playwrights of Facebook. Um, it's actually not official. It was uh, eight years ago as as a youth. I figured, oh, that should probably go in there somewhere. But look it up. It'll be there. And the December opportunities will be coming out um, on December 1st, the January ones on December 31st, ideally. Uh, the MDQ, when it goes live, will be at the MDQ.com and we'll be able to, uh, episodes will be able to be downloaded there and through iTunes. And up next for me, um, well, currently I'm a uh, playwriting ensemble member with the Mercy Street Theater Company, so it's getting uh, that company's first season up and running, where we'll be premiering The Bird Girl by EJC Calvert. Excellent play, and if you're in Chicago, you should definitely see it. Fantastic. Chicago, one of my favoritest ever theater towns. Oh, it's absolutely great. (laughs) Fantastic. Dusty, thank you so much, and uh, good luck with everything. Thank you much, George.